0: Just to let y'all know, we celebrate um, the gifts that God gives, and it is a blessing to have Taylor share with us. Her family, they're moving to Indiana, uh, so we're going to be losing them, unfortunately, but they'll always be a part of us. and I will just celebrate uh, Taylor um, as she does use God's gifts uh, to, to do good. Uh, What I want you to realize is it's more than our ability to sing. She has been a faithful testimony to who Christ is, and we are very grateful for that. Thank you for sharing with us today. Uh, We sang a song earlier entitled, He Leadeth Me, and I did not request that song, but I am really glad Daly picked that song. Uh, That song was a hymn that's been around for many, many, many years, Uh, but I confess it's probably only about the second time I've heard it at least as a hymn. Actually, uh, there's a Southern Gospel group known as the Martins that remade that song many years ago, uh, and it is an incredible song, and I do know it that way. So this was a little different today. Even when we practiced this morning, I had to, we had to go over it multiple times because of the fact that in my mind, I still hear the Martins singing it. Uh, there is value in me sharing that with you, having to do with the message today. It is the same message within the hymn, He Leadeth Me, as opposed to the Southern Gospel version of He Leadeth Me. It has the exact same words. However, it may look a little bit different for different generations, and it is okay that it looks a little bit different. What matters is that the message must remain the same. Today, I want us to talk specifically about the fact that There is something that is called a generational shift that will take place within the body of Christ. Tim, can you do me a favor? I forgot to set up my three chairs. Can you take care of me? I appreciate it. I have had individuals at times who have said something to me that it just thrills me when I hear it. Actually, it's not to me. It's to my kids. You look like your father except when they're doing bad stuff, then they look like their mother. (laughs) You look just like your father. Those are six words that every father longs to hear. They may not say it in public, but there is a sense of pride that immediately develops when those words are uttered. Yeah, that's my boy. He does look just like his dad, or that's my girl. I guess women probably think the same way. Linda and I have told people for years that our kids got the best of each of us and left us with the rest. Well, know that there are many ways that our children can look like us or that they can look different from us. Obviously, there are the physical traits that show up, but there are other things too. I read this week of a couple of brothers who had been separated at birth. One had been given up for adoption. Yet when they rediscovered each other, 30 plus years had passed. They found that both were serving as police officers in Florida. You think that it might have just been in their DNA, their family genes, that they might choose that path? Sometimes it's behavioral choices that seem to be repeated from one generation to the next. Sometimes it's addictive behaviors. It's not always good. Or perhaps his certain gifts and abilities. There have been multiple examples in the sports world of father and son duos who have walked similar paths, whether in football, baseball, or basketball. It certainly seems that family heritage matters with who or what we become. It's absolutely not the only thing that matters, as we are responsible for our own choices, But it does seem to be a significant factor. What role have have your parents played in you becoming who you are today? Well, there's a familiar passage that I had uh, Josh read a few minutes ago from Joshua chapter 24, and it displays the heart of a father. Now, Joshua is not necessarily the father of an entire nation. But Joshua is speaking and he is acting as a father to his immediate family as well as caring for the nation of Israel. He probably viewed himself as a father figure to them. They might have even viewed him as a father figure. He is nearing the end of his reign of leadership among the Israelites. He is well advanced in years and knows that there won't be many more opportunities for him to address the people of Israel. So he says this, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors, the gods they serve beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Did your parents ever tell you to do something just because they said so? I know as a dad, I have done that on many occasions. You know, there were no real expectations, but somehow you knew that they knew what they were talking about. All right, maybe it took you a little bit to figure it out, but somehow eventually you figured out, dad's not as dumb as I thought he was. Maybe for you it took a long time. I picture Joshua speaking with incredible confidence here. He doesn't explain why he's saying these things, but you can tell that he is speaking with incredible passion and conviction. And I love the fact that he is commanding the people of Israel while also giving them a chance to choose. He is telling them, This is what you must do, but you know what? I want you to take ownership of this choice. On the one side, he's very direct, he commands them to fear. The Lord, with all faithfulness, there is an expectation, you will fear the Lord. He commands them to throw away all of their false gods that they had served previously. By the way, this is a little bit intriguing to me, just because I would have thought they would have done that a long time before now. It suggests that God's grace has been huge to them. He has walked alongside them, and he has provided for them over and over again. He has given them incredible victories, yet here they are. They've been hanging on to the gods of their past. They have allowed these idols to remain among them, these powerless, useless gods. The fact is, many of us who attend church on a regular basis, who have reached that point of surrender where we've cried out to Jesus Christ, many of us have still held on to some of the things of our past, and it does not belong. Yet God's grace has been much bigger than we could ever deserve. I wonder today if there aren't some of us who even now we hold on to the idols of our past. For some of us, maybe it's our hurts They began to identify us, and we began to think of ourselves as a victim. For some of us, maybe it was those trophies of sin, those things that we were doing. We're so proud of, hey, this is who I was. These are the things that I had. For some of us, maybe it's behavioral choices that were intended to be left behind, but for whatever reason, we continue to carry it on with us in spite of the grace and the love and the incredible power and freedom that God has given to us. The mere fact that God would put up with their wandering hearts for so long suggests that his grace is big enough for you and for me. But notice what he calls them to do. Throw away those false gods. Anyways, after commanding them to do certain things, He invites them to choose. You know, if this doesn't sound like a good plan to you, then that's fine. You don't have to choose this God. If you'd rather choose the false gods that have already been conquered by the one true living God, if you'd rather choose the powerless gods of those in Canaan that couldn't even fight against you, well, that's up to you. If you really want to do that, then choose this day whom you will serve. Let me interpret for you what he's saying. You can choose the powerful, almighty God, or you can choose the powerless, all-defeated gods. You can be sure that Joshua had every intention of the people choosing the one true living God. Even though he says, choose for yourselves this day, he already knew what he wanted them to do. I would imagine that had they chosen the false gods, he would have said something in the neighborhood of, you're idiots. What are you thinking? He knew that this made sense, a powerful God or a powerless God. I know which one I want. Then he makes it clear that regardless of what you choose, I, have already made the decision for my family. And he's already been addressing them almost as a, as a fatherly figure to the Israelites, but now he changes course a little bit. He says, whatever you choose, I've already made the decision for my family. We will serve the Lord. It's who we are, and it's what we're going to do. He is firmly in the seat. If you remember from last week, we have the three chairs. He is firmly in the seat of commitment. He is determined already that he is going to be committed to God no matter what else happens. You may choose to walk in disobedience and you may be in that seat of conflict. Man, that's fine if that's what you want. But I don't want anything to do with it, so I'm going to be in the seat of commitment. In fact, my whole family is going to be there. Let me suggest to you that it is incredibly important for us to realize the value of a parent, and I will be more specific, a father who will determine in his heart that I will lead my family to Christ. Understand that you have no greater responsibility than to point your family to him above everything else. I want your kids to be successful. I want them to be talented. I want them to make a difference in the world. But if they do not get to know Jesus Christ, then you have failed as a parent and as a father. I don't know if you notice what Joshua does here Notice that he gives the nation of Israel the chance to choose, yet he himself made the decision for his family. Did you notice that? He didn't take a poll. He didn't go to his wife and go to the kids. Hey, what do you think? Do you think that we should serve the Lord? Now, he gave the people that option, but he didn't give it to his family because this is not a democracy. (laughs) I remember growing up, there were times that my mom wanted me to do something, and I didn't necessarily see it the same way that she did. And I remember her saying, This is not a democracy. Know that as parents, your number one responsibility is to raise your kids. Don't let your kids dictate your faith. You as a parent, you guide them. You point them in a direction that honors him. Remember that this does not guarantee that your children will choose godly paths, but it certainly increases the likelihood that they will honor him. Let me challenge you. You need to set up house rules that include things like we will do family devotions together. We will attend church together as a family. You will live up to a certain standard as long as you live in my house. Parents, you have that authority. Take it and use it. I remember thinking as a kid that my mom was stricter than other parents, and I was correct. (laughs) Yet I also remember the day that I called my mom to thank her for being so strict. In those days before caller ID, she responded, who is this? Actually, I look back, and I believe that had it not been for the high standards that were set for me, that I would not be where I am today. Where might your kids go? What might God do through them if you will lead them in a path that would honor him? Well, the people of Israel respond to Joshua's invitation to join he and his family, and they affirmatively embrace the Lord. They join him in the seat of commitment. They, too, declare that we will choose our God. Far be it from us to choose any other God, they join him in that seat of commitment. He challenges them to make sure that they mean what they say, and apparently they do because they're not really that stupid they know that God is their best option. Interesting exchange takes place. It's not in my notes, but interesting exchange takes place. Joshua's in the seat of commitment. He's just invited them to join him in this seat of commitment. and They say, well, well, of course, we're going to follow the one true living God. Joshua says, no, you can't. You see, he is a jealous God and if you choose to follow him, he's going to have really high expectations. If you choose to follow him and then you find yourself in the seat of compromise or you find yourself in the seat of conflict, he will become angry with you. Now he just told him to choose. (laughs) Now he's trying to talk him out of it. He wasn't trying to talk him out of it. He just wanted to make sure that they truly owned the decision that they were making. It's not enough to say, I want to follow God. You got to mean it. You got to be willing to act on it. You got to be willing to live different because you do follow him. Well, they choose to follow him. They know that God is their best option. And in Joshua 24, verse 31, we read these words. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. What a great reason to celebrate. Judges chapter 2, verse 7, basically repeats the same thing, saying, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel as a nation. had experienced the goodness and faithfulness of God, they were committed to serving the Lord. In fact, even after Joshua dies, they stay faithful knowing that there is only one God who is worthy. There are elders that had lived during the blessing of God and they knew that we needed to stay faithful to this. They had seen firsthand the power of God. But let me suggest that there is a subtle change between Joshua and the elders versus those who would follow them after their deaths. When Joshua spoke to the people of Israel, he spoke with incredible conviction. This was an absolute. We have a God who has delivered us, and he is worthy. This is what you must do. Even when he invites them to choose, he prefaces it in such a way that you would be a fool to say no. And even if everyone else acts like fools, he has already made the decision for his family. He is filled with conviction. The elders also know firsthand that the Lord is all-powerful. Yet you see no such conviction out of those who followed the elders. According to Judges 2:7, I just read it. It was Joshua and the elders who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. Those who followed them heard how God worked, but it was secondhand information. It was somebody else's story. You know, I just finished a series entitled Your Story. And I love the fact that. We are telling our stories to those around us, but the fact is that my story is not enough for you. At some point, those around us must be able to take ownership of the story themselves. It needs to move from second-hand information to firsthand. Otherwise, you'll find yourself slipping from the seat of commitment to the seat of compromise. It's not that They all of a sudden turned their back on God, but they've moved from this position of having conviction, knowing that this God is real and he is powerful, to now having belief. Well, belief sounds like a good thing. If you believe, it's a great thing. But being filled with conviction says there's absolutely no other way. and It seems as though they have begun to reduce their commitment to compromise. Certainly, the Israelites still believe that this is best, but belief and conviction are not the same thing. Belief is when you feel pretty good about the chair's ability to hold you up, so you kind of make sure it's there and make sure that it can hold you up and you sit down nice and easy. Conviction is when you look at that chair and you think to yourself, I know it's going to stand. So you plop down. You don't even think about what's there. Because of my weight, I'm not going to test that right now. The point is, it's very different. Conviction is that there is no way this can be wrong. I am absolutely certain of it. There is no question. Am I might not even announce a doubt. I know that this is real. Belief is far less than that. Notice... That as your story expires, and what I mean by that is, is as you leave, as you die, as your story expires, it seems to lose its value unless the same story is being repeated in the lives of others who walk in your footsteps. Unchecked, the Israelites will naturally continue to slide down this path, moving from commitment to compromise and eventually to the seat of conflict. Look just three verses later there in Judges chapter 2, verse 10 to 12. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. That is, you have Joshua and the elders. They've already died. And now you've got this next generation that followed after them. And they believed. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. It would seem that the further they got away from God's miraculous works, the less of an impact these works had on people. This is where the need for a fresh outpouring of God's Spirit comes into play. Two generations ago, the people had conviction that God was all-powerful and we must remain faithful to Him. One generation ago, the people believed that God was best, that we still needed to follow Him. Yet as this generation comes along, God is seen as one option among many. And when the minority speaks up declaring that we need to follow Christ or we need to follow God, they are viewed as being nothing more than old-fashioned. It is their opinion, and what makes their opinion better than anyone else's? Because we all have them. One generation experienced the power of God. A second generation heard of the power of God. A third generation saw it as fiction and irrelevant to them. The result, they aroused the Lord's anger. They are now in the seat of conflict, in conflict with God. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a very, very familiar story. Sounds like the story of our nation. We've moved from a Christian nation that was founded on God's word to a nation that is morally good. We've moved from a nation that is morally good to a nation that is tolerant of all beliefs and opinions except the old fashioned Christian ones. I want to challenge you in two ways this morning. The first is in regard to the possibility that we have already moved from the seed of compromise to conflict. If you believe that this describes our nation best, then I implore you to pray for this nation. This becomes a cyclical pattern for the Israelites. They repeatedly find themselves in this journey, and each time they get to the seat of conflict, there is punishment, there is wrath. They arouse the Lord's anger, and in their seat of conflict, they cry out to the Lord for help. It's so interesting to me that when they reach that moment where God is the one who is punishing them for their unfaithfulness, they still know he is the only one who can help them. So, in the seat of conflict, while they are no longer under the blessing of God, they cry out to God and seek his deliverance. And you know what he does every single time? He grants them the deliverance of God. If you believe that we as a nation are sitting in the seat of conflict, then we need to begin to pray that God would move in a mighty way to take us back to the seat of commitment where we belong. I believe that the same God who delivered the Israelites over and over and over again would do the same thing for our nation as well. But He won't do it if we don't seek Him. It won't happen just because good intentioned people who call themselves Christians attended church on Sunday morning. It's going to be because the people of God began to seek him above all else. We need to pray that God would move us back to the seat of commitment. But I also encourage you to do what it takes. Now, I'm not looking at the nation. Talk talking about your family for a minute. I want to encourage you to do what it takes to keep your family away from the seat of conflict. Like Joshua making the decision for his family. Why not make some different things a priority in your life? I want to challenge you as parents. It is time to talk about your faith with your kids. They need to know where your faith comes from. Tell them your story. Why did you choose to follow Christ? When did you choose to follow Christ? Why do you still choose to follow Christ? Explain your convictions to them. Don't just tell them you have this conviction. Why do you have this conviction? What is it that motivates you to seek the Lord? Your children need to know where your conviction comes from. Why do you believe the things that you believe? And how have you gotten from point A to point B? Your children need to know your story. Israelites are told repeatedly to set up monuments, probably the greatest example of one would be uh, when they crossed the Jordan River. When they crossed the Jordan River, God instructed that one individual from each of the 12 tribes of Israel was to go into the river while it was dry and take a large stone and carry it out to the other side, and then when they got to the other side, they set up a monument of 12 stones who knows how big it was. I picture each one of those men trying to get the biggest stone possible just so they could outdo the other tribes. When they got out of the water, I picture other people trying to help them carry it until they got to the point that they would set up this monument. It wasn't just so that they themselves would say, hey, we did something to get across. They didn't. God's the one who got them across the water. The reason for the monument, it tells us that when your children, your grandchildren, ask what this monument is for, what these stones are for. You tell them this was the place that God dried up the Jordan River and we crossed over on dry ground. You see, God always intended for families, for parents to tell their story to their children. So talk about your faith with your kids. But I also want to challenge you with this. It is time for us to start passing that story on to them, giving them the opportunity to experience faith the way you have. I want to invite you. you. know, We just took a group of people to Costa Rica, and it was such a blessing to go. What an opportunity to serve and to be able to see other people around the world to really appreciate the things that we have. Honestly, every time I go on the mission field, my thought is, man, I've got it really good. God has blessed us more than we could ever deserve. I want to challenge you. Involve your children in something. Like, maybe some of you have never been involved in any type of mission or even local ministry. Get involved. We had Clemson Community Cares here this past Thursday night. I want to challenge you. If you don't want to go to Costa Rica or someplace outside of the United States, there are plenty of opportunities locally. Get involved. How can I serve? And then when you go, bring your kids. Let them serve alongside you so that they can make a difference, so that they too can realize how good God has been to you. Now, one last challenge for those who are parents. I want you to tell your story. I want you to involve your kids, but let them see firsthand the power of prayer. I challenge you to pray with your kids keep a journal, keep a list of things that you prayed for, and then be able to look at it and say, hey, look, God answered this one. Look what he did in the midst of our need, in the midst of our problems. If you want your kids to be in the seat of commitment, a lot of it's going to fall on you. I know eventually they're going to stand before God and they're not going to be able to say, well, but my dad, my mom didn't do this. None of that's going to matter. They're going to stand before God, and it's going to be on them, but let's give them every chance possible to make sure that they are ready. I will just take a minute. If you have children in the children's ministry, um, we've been able to do this, uh, uh, but one of the things that Amy has been doing, is a great ministry. They have a, it's a table talk tower that they send home with the kids each week, and it's basically got some devotions that you can do at the dinner table uh, just to be able to take the time and read through some scripture and to be able to talk about it as a family. I want to challenge you and encourage you. If you have children and they're in the children's ministry, you need to ask them today, where's your table talk tower so that you can actually use that around the dinner table? We are the ones whom God has placed in leadership over our kids. Let's lead them well. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you, we confess that we have not always been as good at all of this stuff as we need to be. Father, I pray for your forgiveness, but I also pray for your leading. From this moment forward, I pray that every mother and father in this room, and even children, I pray that they would determine in their hearts, that, regardless of what other people choose to do, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, I pray that you would enable us to pass on the faith that we have to the next generation so that there'll be no generational shift where we continually go worse and go in the wrong direction, but rather let us push forward to the seat of commitment and allow our kids to walk in that same seat of commitment, knowing the power of God and knowing his incredible love and grace. Some of us have allowed things of our past to diminish the impact that is possible in our families. We have held on to the false gods, the idols that were a part of our lives. We seek your forgiveness. And right now we ask that you would allow us to throw those things away, to no longer allow those things to identify who we are, but that from this moment forward, we will be identified by the one true living God, the one who has redeemed us, the one who has set us free. Lord, may our generation, may our nation seek you once more. We do celebrate our families, and we ask that you would make our families holy and righteous before you, but we also pray for our nation. I pray that where we have allowed conflict to settle in, where sin abounds within our nation, I pray for your forgiveness, and I pray that you would restore us to a place that truly is worthy of your blessing. Forgive us and allow us to be changed. Send a spirit of revival to this land. May it begin here, but I pray that every politician, every government official, every political individual, every media organization, Lord, I pray that revival would come across this land and that we would become the people that you've called us to be. May we truly be people that the rest of the world would look at and say, man, they look just like their heavenly father. May you be reflected in us. In Christ we pray, amen. It is such a blessing to have each of you with us today. And I encourage you to go out as the children of God, making a difference in this world. Lead your families well. Go in peace.